Welcome to the Downstream from Religion podcasts. Here, we take a look at the book of Judges and show how the book highlights the problems and solutions for their times as well as ours. Feel free to email me with comments or questions, rabbi at rabbibailey.com. Most importantly, please subscribe, tell your friends, write me write a review, easy for me to say, and share. Feel free to contact me, share your own ideas and thoughts. Special, uh, exciting milestone today, even though it's sort of a heavy topic. Uh, we will, God willing, look at the final few chapters here and finish the book, the main text of the book, and then we'll have some afterthoughts, hopefully. So it begins by talking about this story of this concubine at Gibeah. The Pelegish Begiva, concubine at Gibeah. So a concubine is a wife that has sort of a less committal relationship. There is no marriage contract and less um, rights by the husband. And it is as scandalous as it sounds. And we're going to go through this story with a few comments from the Jewish sages that will enlighten us and tell us the lessons of, uh, of the Shoftim, of the Book of Judges. And we can apply some of these lessons to our day. Let us begin. So 19.1, again, the refrain repeats. There was no king in those days, no king in Israel. The sentence continues, mid-sentence, to tell you about the story, to highlight that there is no proper judicial system to adjudicate the law. Therefore, things will get out of hand. Uh, there was a man who was a Levite. As we spoke about, Levites are the, the second level of priests that exist in the Jewish people. Uh, he lived in the foothills of Mount Ephraim. Ephraim is Joseph's son, one of the Joseph tribes. He married a concubine from uh, Bethlehem of Judah. That's Bethlehem in the south. So once again, we're connecting to the Judah tribe, the more um, assertive-aggressive monarchical tribe. So his concubine deserted him. She ran away from him. We must understand why. And in those days, it was very dangerous to travel. So her traveling, going to her father's house, was a dangerous journey. She was there for four months. And this husband, Levite husband, went after her to cajole her to come back. He had an attendant with him and donkeys. So why do we have to hear all these details? She brought him into her father's house, and the father of the girl was happy and glad. And this Levite stays at his father-in-law's home. Initially for three days. They eat and they drink and they sleep there. And there's a fourth day. He arose to leave and the father-in-law said, Stay, have some bread. So bread is a heavily satiating food. Or it could mean conjugal um, events. So they sat and ate and drank together. That's not talking about conjugal. That's food. And he, the, the young man stayed in the room with his, his, uh, his concubine wife. The father of the girl said, please, agree to stay overnight. Keep your heart at ease. The man rose to leave. His father said, no. He kept him there. And we're going on a fifth day. So we need to understand, why is this father-in-law just taking this middle road to placate him? And this has to drag on and be sort of a clunky situation here. And it ends up happening that this husband leaves in the middle of the day to take his um, concubine wife out of the town and 
again, we must under, understand that people used to leave very early in the morning in order to travel as far as they were able to do so because it was dangerous to travel in those days. So you would not leave in the middle of the day. You, it was, you must leave early in the morning. And before you encounter the evening, the danger of the night, find a place to stay. They leave and they end up uh, staying away from Jerusalem, which is not the settled Jerusalem at the time. It's just called Jebus, the Jebusites, because this story, as with the last story, occurred chronologically, actually at the beginning of the book, before Othniel, son of Kenaz, came to begin the, uh, to be the first judge. These stories are here at the end to have a dramatic effect, dramatic exclama exclamation point to mark off the end of this book. So our Jewish sages comment that this story is actually one of a husband who put exceeding fear in his house. I guess you can call it in our days verbal abuse or um, creating a, a, an environment of fear. And that is why she left him. And then we can let's go back and understand the story. The man is a Levite. He is supposed to be using his guarding strength and his education to um, be a guardian for the temple, a guardian for the cities of refuge, an educator and a strong presence, almost like a rabbinic or a pastoral presence throughout Israel. Rather, he uses that intensity, as Simon and Levi did, to wipe out Shechem, to be aggressive, in other words. Living in the foothills of Ephraim, so he's living again in that Josephite area, an area where they're more open to secular culture, and they run the risk of having their religious lives decay. He perhaps is giving in to the idolatrous messages of those around him. Instead of indulgent, pathetic impact, it is an impact of aggression, the uh, the strong, angry, selfish side of idolatry. Or perhaps it was just a arrogance or narcissism or, or misuse of his attributes. His wife is from Judah. And, you know, again, as we, heard, as we spoke about with Samson, she or her father should be Judahites, they should be strong, monarchical people who can settle issues, but it doesn't happen. She is put upon, she doesn't demand the marriage, he doesn't put a ring on it, so to speak. This is the equivalent in the Bible of a girlfriend. He's the, He has the most non-committal, selfish type of relationship that you can find that was approved of in those days. So it's, a, it's like a girlfriend type. She leaves him without being strong. Her father-in-law is placating him he's becoming an enabler this father-in-law should be giving rebuke to this son-in-law telling him to behave himself be strong with him not be afraid of his response strong response but rather he's placating and we've seen a degradation of judah at the beginning of the book they are the first tribe to come and fight against the boss of bosses that head person that he cut off his thumbs and then, in times of Samson, they said, Samson, don't you know that the idolatrous Gentiles rule over us? And now, this father-in-law from Judah is not even saying anything. So this is the first lesson, what's going on on a micro level. 
and it will be on a macro level. And I want to put put everything into perspective and have a positive lesson on this as well. So it's important to call out abuse when there's abuse, people crossing the line. Uh, in domestic situations, very often two people escalate the situation. They're both pushing or one is just prodding and one's aggressive. When, they, when people cross the line, of course, that is verbal or physical abuse. God forbid. And that is what destroys a home. The home is the weakest link in the nation. Homes cannot have fear, fear-based model. That's what this positive discipline method I keep mentioning teaches, as other methods do, Mariposa, other methods of parenting or relating to the family, humanistic psychology, family, psychology, and therapy. So there does need to be a hierarchy of parents and children, um, but that hierarchy is meant to speak to the children in a way that gets them to think themselves and to reflect while the parents still create a boundary. And unfortunately, up until the 50s and 60s and gradually until now, women in the United States and Western culture, they were part of that fear-based model with the children. They were, they were subservient or um, compliant along with the children to listen to the father. And that's obviously out of hand because they are adults, of course. So keep it, but keeping the model of the father taking initiative of the father having an impact on the family, but making two people to be the co-leaders of the family, that is the key. So ideally a father will have an opinion. He will not be a dictator, which is not healthy and he will not Excuse me, there's a little audience over here. There's <laughs> a little audience and things, moving parts over here. Um, and he will not keep asking questions. What should I do? What should I do? That's pathetic in the eyes of a female partner or uh, anybody, really, for that matter. So a real healthy father, husband, man says, I think this. What do you think? Then the female responds because the female wants him to take initiative, but she wants to be influencing a part of the situation, as we mentioned with Deborah, And that creates this whole... Uh, cycle of giving. Unfortunately, men are highly susceptible to anxiety and st stress, um, more susceptible to it, and it causing them to lose their cool. So think of it as a thermometer. Think of a thermometer. So every, you know, with the spoons theory, we only have so much energy throughout the day, throughout the week to expend until we need to recharge. And we really only have so much patience in terms of stress in our lives. Women can accept eight out of nine categories of pain better than men. Men can do the um, construction type of pain, and they're good at the sort of having one job of ongoing similar moderate stress that has high um, bumps within it. Um, so when a man becomes angry, it's not always meant to be frightening and abusive and harming people. A lot of times we should have empathy towards men. They do work very hard and long hours and um, when they get angry they a lot of times they're just at capacity and they feel intolerant they're not trying to hurt and abuse people so we should have some empathy at the same time we should give them and they should learn methods for parenting methods for self-expression of feelings doesn't have to be expressing feelings all day but when people know the playbook they can run the plays when 
fathers know the parenting playbook, they can feel more comfortable and calm down that they have an action plan for how to deal with children. They can have an action plan for how to communicate with the spouse, with adults. Um, so on the one hand, we need to challenge men not to be angry and aggressive because that destroys the fabric of the family. It weakens the weakest link in the nation, which is the family unit, the weakest link in the chain. And we also need to challenge them and, and empower us as men, fathers, husbands to get a grip on our frustration levels and anxiety and stress levels. First, get a grip on our stress levels in order to stay calm and even keeled, which is incredibly important. And man as a highly potent influencer of the family to help keep that even keeled uh, influence on the family. Okay, so let's move on from the individual level to the group level. So this man and his concubine and his donkeys and his attendant. So his attendant, I think, is mentioned as a, it's almost a source of strength to help bolster him up. He needs this young man to work with him to bolster him up. He's not actually strong inside. A lot of people who are aggressive and even controlling have been exposed to feel pathetic and small. They're not mighty and sociopathic. On top of that, donkeys are like the low, like a jalopy. You know, camels are high class travels, horses, high class equal or just below that. But in these times, a set of donkeys is a real um, jalopy situation. So they come to this town and they see a man from Mount Ephraim and they're in a Benjaminite area. So this man from Ephraim is kind of a fish out of water here. So he he's more savvy. He says, you guys can't sleep on the street. You got to get out of the street. This is crazy. He brings them into the home does kindness to them but we have a situation that parallels the situation of sodom and gomorrah here these people demand to know the biblical knowing of, of the concubine and they end up doing horrible uh, things to her and she dies um so we have to understand this parallel to sodom because it's not just oh similar story similar metaphor but there's something deep at the root here so let's talk about Psychology, sociology, when you have a group of people or an individual who don't feel like they have anything unique about them, they, they don't realize that they can actually mold themselves into something. They just need to pick something and they can practice that for a while and become proficient. So some of these people actually do have a talent and they need to realize if they're analytic, creative, mathematical. That's a low self-esteem or self-critical issue. But a lot of people actually start out without having a sp specific skill set. And there are challenges to uh, mold themselves into who they want to be. And that's actually a benefit. They feel really insignificant. But they need to realize that their malleable nature is actually um, a positive. However, when these people feel like they need to be assertive and act, they don't tend to act, you know, with a lot of these archetypes and skill sets that we've mentioned. They don't tend to go in to be super talented givers. They don't tend to go and delve into delve into creativity or analytic approaches. They tend to just become more aggressive and strong. So 
it's sort of the first two steps in the kingship uh, journey. It's it's sort of the first two steps in the archetypes that we speak about. The sustain number one, sustaining non-judgmental. That's a good attribute, and that person can mold themselves into something. But they tend to want to just be more guarding, go straight to that. It's it's ironic because it's sort of an opposite. It's it's a very big opposite to be judgmental, to be strong. But it's on the same continuum, really. And that's what we saw, if you remember, the second judge, who was the first in the seven steps, was Ehud fighting against Eglon, the big fat king. And we talked about how to be non-judgmental and all accepting, it has a kindness element to it. We're of the same kind, I will give to you as a kindness. But it also is perceived as weak and malleable in a negative way. So Ehud came along and he's left-handed and more cunning and more assertive. And he showed that you have to go farther down the continuum of assertiveness and specificity in order to actually get anywhere, to understand philosophy, to understand you have to have an opinion. However, that can take you all the way down the road to unhealthy Isaac, unhealthy Shamgar, to someone who's guarding as this Levite is. Uh, to being aggressive instead of protective and a samurai uh, acting out, you know, one one in a hundred times in order to protect and push away bad, the it's constant attack, it's selfishness, it's strength. So let's take this to the sodomite level. You know, we are commanded to um, host people for hospitality, Jews and Christians, other faiths, and this is a beautiful commandment. In those days, it was even more severe because when they traveled from city to city, uh, it was dangerous, as I said, and they would be exhausted for three days. They could lack food and water. When someone comes to your house, they're not just asking you, you know, somebody you know asked to stay at your house from college. It's not just someone checking into a hotel, although they did have hotels and inns back then. It was someone who really was, life is, in, is like in danger, borderline in danger. And you need to, act, and there's actually a commandment in Judaism in those times or in, in our day when it's, it's dangerous travel to make sure the person has food and a map and a way to get to the right place. You know, it's sort of equivalent to don't go in a dangerous neighborhood nowadays. Make sure to travel the right way. So in those times, it was, it was incredibly important to host people. It's a big commandment now. It's less life and death. It's still a big commandment. So... You could imagine, though, people getting bitter and depleted from hosting, right? Let's go from kindness to selfishness. Let's go down this journey. So someone can feel like, we are just such kind people. Do you know how much money I spent on hosting guests? I spent hundreds of dollars. This year I spent thousands of dollars on hosting guests. And parenthetically, they don't realize that God's going to bless them with money. Um, and of course, listen, don't host a guest if it hurts your family. Don't host a guest if you don't think you can afford it. There is a balance here. I shouldn't be confusing you with this, but I just want to be clear. Ideally, we should go out of our way to host people and to be kind. But there is a survival element. I admit, there is a, there is a guarding element to kindness. There's a, there's a self-preservation element to giving. And you see people that are involved in churches and synagogues too much and sacrifice their family. So there is a positive way to put guarding into kindness, but I'm arguing the Sodomites and the Benjaminites in our text here are doing it in the wrong way. So someone could say, we need to be strong. We need we got to stop hosting guests. We are losing money. Our resources are depleted. We are pathetic. 
So let's let's stop hosting guests. So we, when you go down that road, there is no bounds to the selfishness. Selfishness will go into everything, and that's why it says in the um, in the prophets and the Jewish tradition, the sodomites were filthy rich. They never gave charity, kept everything for themselves. When someone came, they gave them charity money. They tricked him out of it and get the money back. So these Benjaminites went on a sad trip of selfishness because of feeling like they're, oh, we're the youngest tribe, we're small, we're not unique. Um, we are influenced by idolatry around us to be selfish. It's an un-Jewish, it's an un-religious idea. So they got to the point where they were selfish with their money, a lot, at least a whole bunch of them in this area. Um, and then we'll see later with the whole tribe itself being aggressive. And they got to the point where, uh, you know, going and doing the in, that uh, intimacy crime to someone relates as well because when two men and women having the intimacy there's a mutual pleasure there excuse me for talking about this but it's very important and when somebody is, is a sodomy or the one-sided relations that someone else doesn't want that is pure taking that's just about the selfishness of selfishness of one person so on a micro level this man is selfish this levite and on a bigger level the benjaminites have gone too far down the road of selfishness and they allow this travesty to happen. This Levite, unfortunately, chops up the concubine after she after she dies, sends her to all the different twelve tribes to make a statement. And it makes a statement. You know, unfortunately, you know, when you when you tell people about a problem, they don't really listen until something dramatic happens. This is why, on a national level. There's large-scale attacks. Oh, fine, we'll go to war. But if you hear about sedition from within, if you hear about, you know, a dangerous death of a thousand paper cuts, I don't want to hear it. You're a conspiracy theorist. We hijacked the language. A conspiracy theorist is a bad thing. There's nothing wrong with having theories of conspiracy. It's, it's only a problem if it's never unfounded, if you're a crackpot and waste your time. But that language has been hijacked. Nothing wrong with thinking about conspiracies. Look how many have come true. Tuskegee experiments and all that. So, unfortunately, until there's something that really rouses people through fear or passion, they don't usually act. They usually think you're a conspiracy theorist. You know, the British are coming, conspiracy theory. And that's why, unfortunately, countries do false flags. They hurt their own people to rouse them in order to get agreement and consensus to attack the enemy. Unfortunate method. Or they allow attack to happen to rouse people. So here, unfortunately... People didn't listen when they said, stop doing idolatry. Stop being selfish. Do the commandments. They didn't listen. They listened with fear. And there's an even bigger statement of the sages. In the story of Esther, the evil Haman convinces confused King Ahasuerus to give him his ring, to give him power. And the Jewish sages say there was more repentance from that transferring of that ring than all of the male and female prophets in history. 42 male prophets, 7 female prophetesses. All their chastisement, all their words of rebuke. Nah, it's conspiracy theory. I don't want to hear. The fear, the clarity, the absolutism, that's what got people to act. So I bless us all that we act without fear. In our days, sitting here in 1226, 2021, in these days of COVID, when many governments and municipalities have taken advantage of the situation and gone too far or acted uh, to earn money out of malice, 
sociopathy, whatever it is, um, it's becoming clear that the fear is bonding us together, making people connect all around. And I've seen it. And it's really cool. So may we all act out of education and out of being roused. Back to the text. So this really unites the Jewish people. Look at 20, 20 chapter 20, verse 1. All of Israel went out as a single man. Later on, it says that all of Israel... It's a 8, verse 8. All of the people arose as one man. No one will go away. We have to deal with this. So, unfortunately, it's a bad thing that unites them, but it does. And they need to stop the problem in Benjamin. Now, what they should have done is they should use the judicial system to prosecute. It's actually the safest, most reasonable way. And I'll bring a parallel to today. A lot of people want to take all these criminals around the world that are hurting people and fight against them and make a war. It's actually dangerous because once you're fighting and they're fighting, man, they could, if they're in power, they could just fight you. I saw a Jewish text about the sins that were going on with the Tower of Babel. I think it also was referring to the generation of the flood, but the, the Tower of Babel, you know, mighty people were taking advantage of less fortunate people. And it says there that they should not fight back. They should use the judicial system to prosecute people. Take, even though it takes time and some people are lost, it's less casualties in the end. So I do believe there's a time and place for walking in and taking people by the shirt collar and tossing them out. But you better make sure it's a safe situation. And I, I totally promote, as I've said before, massive civil disobedience. People get gathering together for the right cause, pressuring justices to do the right law. Good laws in America and other Western countries, they need to be exercised or changed. So, serious lack of a judicial system. And Israel becomes uh, angry on a macro level. The, the people of Israel, parallel to this Levite, become angry. And they have a response that is way, 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 way too strong. They almost wipe out the entire tribe of Benjamin here. And I think that on one level, it's beating up a little brother. You know, this little brother did something wrong. I finally get to beat him up. And that's a that's a, a negative feeling. I'm an only child. I'm still trying to understand this lack of empathy that siblings have a lot of times. But I think one part of the response is to smack down a younger sibling. The youngest, the most plain, has acted out. And I also believe there's a little bit of a projection, guilt, reaction, formation, Freudian defense mechanism here where I think all of Israel feels guilty that every tribe is succumbing to idolatry. So sort of as a, a reaction to their own guilt, they lay it thick on Benjamin, unfortunately. Okay, let's continue in the story and then we'll end off on a shocking note. So there's a practice that the Jewish people ask the, the high priest about going to war. And there is a breastplate called Urim Vitumim, the illumination and the purity. And it has all of the stones for Israel and extra stones on the shoulders. Each tribe of Israel had a stone of their own color, you know, onyx and sapphire. And it had the name of the tribe. And there was a sentence, the, the name of the tribe was etched in each stone. And on the shoulders of the high priest, there were other stones that had a sentence about the tribes of Israel, a positive sentence. And that completed every single letter in the Hebrew alphabet. So they would ask of God what they should do. And then different letters, letters would light up. 
and they would tell them what to do. So bear with me while we go through the three steps here. It seems like silly wordplay when they ask about it in chapter 20, but it really has meaning if you get to the third request. So first they say, who among us should advance first to wage war against Benjamin? And God answered, Judah should be first. So they didn't ask if they should go to war. They just asked whom. So God says, well, we want to know whom it is in Judah. So obviously God didn't use that voice, but it's a misreading of this to be sort of a silly wordplay, like a self-deprecating sitcom person. But it's not. It's not. God is directly answering them uh, for a reason. I'll explain. And then... So the Jewish people lose to Benjamin, even though it's a small tribe. Uh, Benjamin uses left-handed people, and they come strong. As I said, people who are people who feel plain and are full of kindness, they go to aggression and strength. So they're they're ambushing. They got swords. They're left-handed to trick people. As the phalanx move towards each other, they don't uh, meet people with, who are right-handed. Oh, surprise! Left-handed. So Benjamin is using the the cunning, the guarding way. They beat uh, Israel. Israel says, should I go again against Benjamin? And God says, yes. And Israel loses again. And then, in the third instance, you see what they should have done all along. They bring offerings. They do repentance. They speak to Phineas, son of Eleazar, son of Aaron. So he's the high priest. He's the righteous high priest, the bastion of guarding and education. He stopped the lewd behavior in the book of Numbers and stopped the plague with his um, putting his foot down. So they ask properly and God says, go up against them and then they defeat Benjamin. So they should have arrested Benjamin, only put certain people to death who were the rapists and the abusers and they should have educated them and scared them. Um, not scared them, but you know, create a thin blue line of police officers because you're supposed to have a king judges on different levels of courts, police officers, and each man in his home um, being a teacher and giving loving boundaries. That's what they should have done, but they came with strength, and they actually killed the vast majority of Benjamin. They circled around them as a kingship set of warriors. They strike them down, so there's only a small amount, and we spill over into chapter 21. So it's a problem because... If they wipe out a tribe of Israel, it's, it's a horrible travesty. It's embarrassing. And they cannot have the divine spirit, the divine prophecy lay upon them if they wipe out one tribe. And it never should have been. It's not about just, oh, let's get our spiritual kicks. But it is um, it's an important tribe. Every tribe is a, is a, a tribe of God. No matter the personality, no matter how... Adept, one is at war and one is at business and one is at being malleable. They're all holy, just as every single human is holy that has a stamp of God, an intellect, and an ability to um, connect to the divine and spread spirituality. We're all unique humans. Constructive, the opposite of idolatry. Idolatry and these messages in society, they want you to, oh, you're, you're, you're dirty, you're depressed, you're nothing, just give in to it. All these self-deprecating memes. I wrote one subject of an email and I'm exhausted and anxious. Oh my God, I'm anxious and exhausted. It's all on the road to perdition. It's all on the road of narcissistic abuse and self-flagellation and idolatry. We believe in positivity. People are born pure. Maybe some Christians disagree with that. But the point is that you can create purity and positivity. Be obsessed with positivity. It's 
it relates to the divine and it's expressed through commandments okay so they find it they find a region of people that did not come and fight and they have to wipe out those people because they did not come to fight i'm not saying i condone that but that's their logic and they take some of the women there to give to benjaminites as wives and then the jewish people find a way to be compassionate to the Benjaminites. And that's exactly reversing the trend of what we're talking about. They're turning the other cheek, so to speak. We talked about going from kindness and malleable behavior to being strong. But the Jewish people say, you know what? It is a horrible travesty. You don't have wives. Let's try to make a loophole, lay in the graves, and women will come and dance. And if you don't have a wife, you can come out. And if you say, oh, it doesn't fit technically our ban on the Benjaminites say we have to have compassion and you know if they're laying in the grave it's as if they're dead and then they can they come back as new people it's as if they gave a chance to God to let them die but we should let them marry into the Jewish people because this has gone too far and that with that little bit of kindness you can get the ball rolling on retroactively the rest of the book the first step is kindness and being non-judgmental then is guardian safety. Unfortunately, there's still no king in Israel. Every man, every person did what they deemed fit in their eyes. And this story, again, is the beginning of the book. And then everything we talked about, every judge, every issue, all along the way. But we end off with these shocking stories in order to give us a slap in the face, some cold water. And that's really the lesson, you know, we should really turn the narrative around. We should feel like there are issues, but there's hope to always improve it. Kindness and guarding and symbolism and religion and analysis and healthy relationships. We have tools to fix the problem. We shouldn't feel like, let's pretend everything's hunky-dory and participation trophies and everybody. If you have a mental health issue, if you have a social issue, if you're, you are the way you are, it's fine. Stay the way you are. No, it's fine because you don't need to criticize yourself. It's fine because we shouldn't discriminate against you, but we should always be someone who strives for more. I remember I was in this, I was in my first internal family systems uh, training online. And part of this is that, you know, just as we do family therapy or you do consulting with groups of people, we sort of have a group on the inside of us. Different parts of us want different things. And part of us can have self-critics, okay? So this, so this, so this uh, older Jewish lady is teaching the class, and she says, your self-critic might tell you, you're fat, you're stupid, and you're ugly, and you're fat. And this young woman with a, you know, youthful, progressive attitude said, actually, I don't think it's um, a bad thing to be fat. It's not a self-criticism. And she said, this is something your self-critic might tell you. And she said, actually, it's not bad to be fat. It's just we are. So the lady explained to her that, you know, it doesn't have to be a condemnation that you're evil and, and stuck, but that's something your critic might tell you. And she finally understood. But, you know, in therapy, I try to explain it as follows, and I think a lot of young people, because of this misunderstanding of that message, or maybe they have a different message, don't understand it, it takes a while. But, you know, let's say someone's overweight, that you can say right now in this moment, I am who I am, I love myself, and there's no reason to hate on myself. 
but I aspire to do more and that could take years. You know, same thing with how someone dresses or speaks or education, you know, there's a certain cognitive dissonance that we will live with <laughs> and it's not meant to be critic. The real, the real issue is to get rid of the critic, but it's okay to have both thoughts in your mind to strive for more. And maybe you only think about the striving sometimes, but both, both of those are key components and you know, we're, we're, we should be, we should be shocked, but we should not be paralyzed and depressed from it. That's what the real pandemic is. Again, I've had COVID. I know people have had it. There is a real disease out there. It's much more complicated how it's manufactured. There are new diseases and things coming out. There's a, lot, a lack of clarity. It's a real thing. Treatments are real. A lot of questions about the shots. Let's not even talk about that. But my point to you is it's been used by certain people to make hundreds of millions of dollars, billions of dollars. It's been used by certain people to decrease observance, to make people afraid. The biggest issue is the fear, is splitting us apart as in the days of Shamgar, keeping us disconnected, giving us postmodernism, that everything is true, which means nothing is true, as in the days of Ehud and Eglon, with controlling the media and the narrative, as in the days of Deborah and Barak, with taking away our desire to study more, as in the days of Gideon, taking away our knowledge that our behavior impacts creation and the spiritual realm. Sorry to say, but yeah, if we do things, there might be punishments and tragedy in the world. If we do well and quote-unquote behave ourselves with religion, as in the times of Gideon, the world improves and we improve. And it's not a reason to feel guilty or to guilt others, but it's a reason to to grow and to always move a step further. You cannot go to be someone who's totally aggressive. <laughs> Did you hear that snoring in the background? Let's just laugh. Let's just let, let let's let the recording be imperfect. I saw my audience fell asleep here. It's snoring like a grown man. Okay, let's all just laugh together. Um <laughs> Uh, let's let it be imperfect because if I, you know what, if I didn't allow these classes to be imperfect, they would not exist. I didn't post a blog for 10 years and now we have this whole series. Thank you, God. So in the days of Gideon to realize our behavior does impact creation and it's not a reason to be depressed. It's a reason to grow incrementally. You cannot become righteous overnight. It's one step at a time. That's sustainable. And others cannot be Come righteous overnight. It's not sustainable. It has to be incremental. So relax on yourself. Relax on others, but know the stakes are real. Spiritually and physically. Gideon teaches us the stakes are real. And as we got into the other, less spoken about, judges. Tola and humanistic, no, deep emotional care for others. And Jair and entrepreneurship. To know that we are being decimated from our empathy and from entrepreneurial spirit. And we need to keep those alive. Shake ourselves out of this reality. You know, they are using techniques from evil behavioral psychologists from the past 50 years to make us feel a certain kind of way through the media and flicker rates and messaging. We got to shake out of it. We need to feel settled, to feel ourselves, to feel happy and to progress and we can find god willing financial um success through like jair and we can still feel 
uniqueness as individuals, see others as unique, and to have deep levels of empathy, as did Tola, son of Pua, Jephthah. We can realize that the crown is to God. We need to all connect tightly as all the little pieces of gold does, does in the crowd, in a crown. We cannot use our strength to be around empty people. We must keep deep connections alive and pray for the kingship and the strength to vanquish that which is evil. We need to remember the story of Samson. We need to vanquish narcissism, reduce our physical pleasure without being ascetic because it's not practical. And we need to be happy, not with this evil police state, but to be happy with actively pushing away evil from our midst, to actually blend together the individualistic democratic and the monarchy, to want the monarchy, but to want a healthy one. That is what we need that Samson gave us. And the last two lessons, we need to remember that on a micro level, we need father, mother, child. If we can get it, if you can't, it's understandable. We need men to be present and to be healthy because that is a microcosm of our father in heaven and our father, the clergy person and the healthy police. Most police would like to do well and to be noble and to serve, maybe even too much. And we need to not become too angry and domineering as with this Levite. We need to have proper study and understanding about how to relax and self-soothe and to parent and to be a partner in a human. But the number one thing that the idolaters want to do is break up the home. List, listed on all these websites of these groups that claim to be helpful, but they're actually causing discord is evil patriarchy and disbanding the home. Not everything is evil patriarchy. I've met many women who are abusive as well. Nothing to do with gender and age and all that. It has to do with who they are. So we need to keep striving for intact homes and balance. And we pray to our Father in Heaven that we will vanquish the idolatrous spirit which is alive and well. And we will use judging, not to be judgmental, but to refine ourselves in the cauldron of spirituality and see the coming of the Messiah speedily in our days, even if there's some snoring in the background. <laughs> Love you, God. And that was the Downstream from Religion podcast. Please let people know we finished the text. Maybe I'll go back and refine some. Maybe I won't. Just leave the imperfection. And hopefully I'll do some sort of summary or further message, whatever comes to mind. And may 2022 be better. It can be better. Each day can be better. And the Jewish year, 5782, uh, keep being better and better to the world.